I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. Welcome back to On Extremism. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Rashad Ali, a resident senior fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in London and a counterterrorism practitioner. Once a part of an extremist movement himself, Rashad has now devoted himself to explaining why young people are so drawn to violent extremist organizations and how we can stem that flow. His research is extensive and includes countless interviews with returned foreign fighters and former extremists in an effort to understand the drivers of radicalization and how we can interrupt them. Rashad, why don't we start by having you tell us a bit about your personal journey? How did you get lured into a violent extremist group? And more importantly, how did you extricate yourself? Sure. I think the drivers now people will talk about in different contexts. I think if you speak to uh, political analysts, they will talk about the nature of geopolitics. Anybody looking, for example, at the moment in the conflict in Syria will be able to point at the, you know, the tyrannical authorities that are killing literally hundreds of thousands of people, the role the Iranian regime is having in radicalizing Sunnis, the support the Russians have had in destroying and decimating people and also kind of building on that you know on top of the politics strange conspiratorial narratives that will resonate with people when they see this and look the west is silent about you know the deaths of 400 plus thousand people uh, almost with tacit approval from the likes of the u.s and the western powers whilst nothing is happening uh, to stop that people are bombing the islamic state and so they will talk about this as though there's a conspiracy against Islam or Islamist ideology, whilst tyrants are upheld in the Middle East. And political analysts will talk about this as being primarily politically driven radicalization. Um, others will look at social economic factors and describe communities that I'm sure people have spoken about in Belgium, the Molenbeek community which has been the subject of much discussion of what's going on at the moment in terms of radicalization across Europe, that this is a community that has a 40% uh, unemployment rate. And others will look at things related to, I guess, you know, their own area of expertise. Psychologists will describe a very particular process. You have to have an in-group and out-group. There must be an other than them. You must you know, disassociate yourself from, you know, the host community that you're in if you're being radicalized against them. You must dehumanize the other. You have to start utilizing language that describes them as subhuman, you know, and hence theologians will then come across and say, well, this is a distortion of Islamic theology. 
it isn't the case that we consider all non-Muslims as kafirs destined to hellfire. It isn't the case that we believe there's an inherent conflict between Muslims and non-Muslims. It isn't the case that we justify killing of civilians even in actual war zones. And they will describe how theology has been abused, how an azan has been created between mu'mineen and kuffar, believers and disbelievers, between, you know, a justification of terrorist tactics as a darora, a necessity which is completely unfounded in religious terms. The problem with all of these narratives is that none of them are wrong, but they're not exactly right either. They pick upon a different part of the truth, that radicalization often involves a political perspective, it often involves a conspiracy narrative, it often involves an as and then, it will often, in the Islamist case, take on religious language, and the psychology will be created to, us, to other your enemies. And so in that context, they all kind of pick on different parts of the truth, rather like the old fable of you know, the, blind, the village of the blind and the elephant, that they pick on different parts of it. But if you cumulatively look at this, they describe a phenomenon. And I think that is the same, whether it was myself in the early 90s, uh, whether it was you know, being made to question my sense of identity and belonging in Britain and Europe while the Bosnia crisis was going on, where quite literally blonde-haired, white, blue-eyed European Muslims were being slaughtered because of their heritage of coming from an Islamic background. They were othered themselves. Bosnians are no different to Serbs, except they're called Bosniaks because of the cultural heritage. And actually, the fact that Europe tolerated this, and if it wasn't for the US intervening, and if it wasn't for Clinton, Bill Clinton, that is, administration, deciding that we need to do something about it, there would have been a complete massacre. There was attempts at genocide. And so things like that make you question your identity, your sense of belonging. And so groups like Hizb al-Tahrir, like al-Muhajirun, they took on this kind of narrative of us and them. They took on this identity dilemma that you don't belong to Britain. You belong not to being ethnically Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi. You're Muslim. Your identity primarily in a social sense, in a religious sense, in a political sense, is Islam, and therefore you belong to a global diaspora, one of 1.5 billion at the time, 50 plus states, which are all invalid governments, which are proxy governments for the West, which need to be removed and replaced with a singular leadership that would stop things like these atrocities happening in Bosnia, or resolve conflicts like they did in Kashmir, or stop Israeli aggression, etc., etc. So there was a singular narrative, one that brought this all together, that said, in emotionally, mm-hmm. politically, intellectually, religiously, you're part of the global Muslim ummah, the Muslim uh, populace. And therefore, you're politically part of this state that doesn't exist. You know, this caliphate that doesn't exist. Though when it does return, you will have one state for one people as part of one religious community. And this will look after your economic, political, spiritual, social interests, and manifest itself in a singular leadership. And the slogans are the same, very similar to, you know, any of you who are historians would have come across, you know, Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer, that one people with one leader for one state. You know, essentially this is the same narrative. It was one Ummah with one mm-hmm. Khalifa, you know, and so with one state. And that was the kind of all-encompassing, very empowering, 
socially connecting political, religious and identity narrative that was utilised and I do believe is to a large extent elements of that are still utilised today at radicalising people. So you've started to get into this, Rashad, in your answer because you're talking about all of these different layers coming together in a single coherent narrative. But as you know, we've debated here in the United States the extent to which ideology is important in the radicalization process. How do you view the role of ideology? Well, I think if you take any other factor, then those factors in themselves do not enable, they, are, they may enable individuals to embrace the ideology and the narrative, but what they don't do is two very fundamental things. They don't provide a worldview to interpret and understand the events that they're seeing in order to justify and bring about this impulse for political action and militant action. That's the first thing. Secondly, they don't provide a inherent necessity to engage in violent action. Let me explain what I mean. You had movements in the US where you had, quite literally, you have a history where you had second-class citizenship for black minorities. Correct me if I'm wrong. And the reaction this generated was, was you know, many-fold, in fact. But the strongest reaction that was most successful, arguably, was the civil rights movement, one that took those grievances and injustices, the ill-treatment, the violence, the, the removal of rights, the second-class citizenship, and turned that around to say, actually, what we demand is equality, civil liberties, and actually we demand a recognition in society that we're one and the same, our human rights are one and the same, and our political destiny is shared, it's not separate to the destiny of the United States. That was a very powerful counter-narrative, and that was a very powerful narrative that grew and arose out of the ill-treatment, the injustices, the grievance of the oppression of those people. The difference with Islamist ideology is it takes, to some extent, reasonable grievances, other times unreasonable grievances, and other times actual injustices, mm -hmm. and then manipulates them. So if we take any of the examples, whether it's Bosnia or whether it's Syria, the problem in each of those scenarios was tyrannical leadership, was authoritarianism, was fascism. The narrative of Islamism reflects actually more that narrative. It is authoritarian, it's about removing democracy and human rights, and about imposing a specific ideological narrative, a religious narrative. And when I say that, I appreciate the difficulties people have with saying, if it is the case, why are all Muslims like this? Well, because frankly speaking, it's not a normative Islamic narrative. It takes from totalitarian ideology in much the same way as fascism took from communism, so does Islamism. It takes the idea of a super-state solving all problems. It takes the of them West versus East narrative straight from social, you know, socialism, socialist narrative. It takes the evils of capitalist hegemony in much the same way. And it takes the resolution to this as a singular totalitarian state which implements rules for how women should live in their private life, how they should dress, how they should or shouldn't interact in the public space, how you know, sexuality should be controlled and curtailed, whether it's the rights of 
other people, such as homosexuals and so on, and removes them to say, actually, if you do commit adultery, man or woman, if you are homosexual, you'll be stoned to death or killed. It says that actually the only acceptable narrative is not democratic narrative where all people have equal rights. It's a narrative that says Muslims should be empowered, but even then Muslims have authority, but sovereignty belongs to those that espouse religious ideology because all laws come from their singular interpretation of religion. This is both a historic, in the sense looking at the Ottoman state, the last so-called caliphate, it was multifarious in its legal approaches. We had Christian courts, Jewish courts, embassies used to organize, you know, personal law. It had different empires with different communities subsumed within the great Ottoman Empire. And so actually they had different religious laws as well within Islam because Islam historically is not monolithic or totalitarian. And so actually it's very ahistorical, it's irreligious in that sense, but it takes from religious teachings, themes, meanings, concepts, and then puts them together in ideology which takes the political narrative, takes the history, takes the identity issues, and presents this singular narrative which will take an individual who may well be aggrieved, who may well have personal injustices, who may well even be angry at the way he's treated, but then redirects it towards an ideological militant narrative, which often, not in all cases, may lead to violence. So what are we supposed to do in this situation? Obviously, there's a lot of debate and deliberation about responses and strategies. What is your best recommendation um, in terms of a course of action to a start to untangle all of these different threads and replace that sort of single compelling narrative with something that's equally empowering but not destructive? Well, I think that I guess there's three aspects to this. The first is the conceptual aspect, which is understanding the different issues that we're dealing with. So in terms of specifically on the Islamist side, that being able to take apart uh, this understanding of Islamist ideology as being representative of Islam, this fundamentally we need to be able to differentiate. That actually the, the Islamist narrative, whether it's that of you know, the extreme fringe of the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, or whether it's Al-Qaeda, or whether it's the manifestation of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, then actually this narrative is something that's a-religious in the sense that it's not normative Islam. Secondly, we need to be able to critique it from within that context. It's good, all good enough to having slogans, but actually when you look at the analysts, people like Will McCount as an example, his book ISIS and Apocalypse, he highlights you know, one very specific thing, that the killing of civilians in Islamic jurisprudence of warfare has always been something that's been forbidden. And he highlights this from both a pr- prophetic tradition, you know, the Prophet forbade killing women and children, and how this was normative within medieval theology, and he compares that to ISIS and Al-Qaeda narrative with the massacre that they undertake, that they justify this in, you know, in their books like The Management of Savagery by saying that actually this is a tactic of warfare and guerrilla warfare and it's universal. So ironically, they see this has got nothing to do with Islam. And highlighting things like this is important. As well as debates around things to do with singular caliphate, the history and the religious narrative of these things, or monocracy, democracy in Islamic law, and having these debates and discussions is important. Strategically speaking, it's also important, not on a conceptual level, but to understand defeating it requires 
a multi-pronged approach, which means, yes, one of the attractions that people will tell you, Islamic State's attraction, is the fact that it exists, it is successful, it is different. You know, the, one of their slogans is Baqiyya, Baqiyya, that actually they are continuously, continuously in, in authority. And so actually defeating it militarily becomes not just a military achievement, but a, a symbolic and necessary strategic achievement. The third aspect of this is tactical considerations. That we need to be very, very clear that, yes, language is important, but it's only important in the strategic context. So actually the people that we want to fight this battle for on the ideological front, on the intellectual front, are going to be a common group of people, whether Muslim or not Muslim, whether they're conservative, whether they're progressive, whether they're liberal, whether from the right of the spectrum, the left of the spectrum. Actually, we can all agree on a fundamental set of you know, identity and values that I think America is uniquely placed in, that actually whatever you are from the Muslim background, they generally do feel American, whether that's you know, as a hybrid part of their identity or whether that's part of the society they belong to. And I think that's very, very key, that actually there's a common narrative, that the other than isn't one that's produced by us, but actually it's a narrow narrative of the extremists. And so having this consideration would make us realize that we need to engage in this on every single level. So whether it's militarily, whether that's in a political sense, understanding what the issues are. So politically, we may well want to defeat ISIS, but we're never ever going to be able to defeat ISIS whilst the biggest recruitment factors for ISIS are going to be the oppression of the people in the region. Whether that's Bashar al-Assad and the slaughtering of hundreds of thousands of people, whether that's the Iranian regime and the Iraqi Shia militia going in, just what we've seen recently in Fallujah and killing, you know, massacring indiscriminately thousands of people in that region, tracking down 600 to 1,000 ISIS fighters that actually some of those things are going to be majorly problematic and radicalizing factors. Similarly, addressing the, not just the military side, but the, but the specific religious narrative, it does become important that progressive intellectual Muslim voices come out and speak out strongly against this narrative within their communities. And the last thing I would say is differentiating between where we stand together as mm -hmm. a community, where Muslim voices can combat some of these things ideologically and thirdly recognizing actually we do need to have a value stance on who we won't stand with. Is there anybody that justifies this other than narrative, the anti-democratic narrative that refuses to acknowledge the importance of human rights in a global context? that refuses to acknowledge the, the dangers of the other than narrative, actually we can't stand with them. We will talk to them, we will engage them, we won't criminalize them, we will debate them, but we can't stand with them on our side whilst they hold those views. And the last thing I would add is we do need to be very, very streamlined in our strategic approach towards de-radicalization initiatives. It's one thing to talk about counter-narrative on the broad sense, when we're dealing with individuals who are already on the pathway to radicalization, already radicalized, returning back from conflict zones, they do need specialized engagement at the various levels. And I think that's very, very key. One thing we've learned in the, West, in, the, in the UK and across Europe is the importance of de-radicalization initiatives, where you can have formers and people who have left extremist ideology to challenge extremism and also to help individuals through their journeys to be able to 
come away from that narrative and reintegrate into broader society. Your last answer triggered a bunch of additional questions for me. So let me see if I can start to delve into them in a little bit more detail. You talked a little bit about the different roles of the government, of security forces, and the military as part of this multi-pronged strategy. What do you think is the role of the U.S. government, the U.K. government, in countering violent extremism, given what we often hear, which is that governments aren't the right messenger and oftentimes don't have the credibility that's necessary in order to be a voice for the values that you were speaking of? Well, I think there's, there's two separate things. There's challenging the ideological narrative, and there's making sure that we communicate effectively. And I think making sure we communicate effectively, that's important. Governments need to make sure the right language is used, and they don't fall into the, um, you know, the trap of you know, further polarizing our society. That on the one hand, we need to be very, very clear, this isn't just random actions. There's very clear ideological motives that we can see from a movement that has, you know, a political front, a ideological front, and a militant front, which is the broader Islamist movement. So we can be very clear that what we stand against is the ideological extremes of Islamist movements. We can also be very clear that as a society, that does not necessarily mean we're talking about conservative people or politically radical people. We're not talking about people that are critical of America or Western foreign policy. We're not talking about people that are critical of, you know, the types of liberal culture that they see around them. We are talking about people, though, that reject the basic liberal values that we stand for, which are individual rights for all people, equality of democratic rights for all people, and how that, what that means in a pluralist society, i.e., essentially, we need to be very clear in our communications that Muslims, Jews, Christians, atheists, secularists, whoever they may be, they can stand together in the U.S. with shared values. Does that make sense on the communication side? The separate issue of the ideological front, but yes, I agree, it is very, very difficult that governments which may be seen to hold vested interest in challenging extremist ideology may not necessarily be the right people to challenge that ideology. Having said that, that doesn't mean they should not articulate and strongly stand for the values they wish to aspire to. So we should be strong in advocating human rights, strong in advocating a sense of pluralism for societies, and strong in saying this is what we stand for as a civilization and a culture. Civil society, which is everybody outside of government, should be articulating the case for our values in our society. And yes, definitely, Muslim actors should be the ones leading the front of criticizing extremist ideology, both on scriptural, political, and intellectual grounds. And I want to go back to something that you said about being clear about who we won't stand with. Because in one of the other podcasts we did, the interviewee suggested that the people who are most effective pulling extremists away from from violent extremist movements are those who are closest to them ideologically. So this is the argument that quietist Salafis, for example, will be able to be the most persuasive with violent extremists who buy into the ideology. But if you, as, as you've suggested, there's a danger in that as well. Can you talk a little bit about 
the risks as you see, see them of engaging such groups? Well, I think that the discussion here to do with strategy and tactics, but strategically speaking, what type of society do we want? We can recognize the broader issues in our society and the broader narrative and recognize actually it's not about calling yourself Salafi or having puritanical religious views. It's about what is your social views towards how society should run. And therefore, if you believe in discriminating against women, against homosexuals, against um, you know, people who are not Muslim, purely on those grounds, and I'm talking about discrimination, then actually that makes it problematic. I don't believe governments, institutions, civil society can stand alongside those people. Now, there's a second question, which is tactically, are these people able to reach out to violent extremists? This may be the case, but I would suggest actually this isn't quite so simple. First of all, I don't believe there's any long-term or even short-term evidence that, that supports this. You know, the experience that we have in Europe and, you know, in the UK where we've had a de-radicalization program and a prevention program that's been going on for almost 10 years now, we, you know, eight years, we can certainly say that some individuals have been reached by these people, but actually many of the formers, the returnees, um, have been reached by people who understand their narrative, who can relate to their narrative, who understand the theology and the holes in their theology and can let them think it through so that the cognitive opening works in the reverse way so that they can recognize the errors of their ideological perspective. And I think that's quite key. Secondly, and this is also a consideration, a lot of the people people are talking about here in terms of Salafi, um, you know, preachers, it works both ways. What I mean by that is it is true as an example that I've spoken and mentioned that Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab, the founder of the Wahhabi movement, fundamentally was against the global expansionist caliphate. He believed in multiple emirates, and which is why and how he justified his own creation of the Saudi state whilst not recognizing the Ottoman caliphate rule and governance over them. So there's some truth to say there's a religious narrative that can be deployed to show these people are not really Salafi. However, the other side of that narrative is not just the issues of political governance, i.e. e.g. executing you know, people for adultery and so on, but actually there are Salafi narratives that have been utilized by the likes of the American Sheikh Anwar Olaki, who, was the Al who went on to become Al-Qaeda Yemen's leadership who utilized fatwas or religious edicts that were given by Ibn Taymiyyah, the then Mufti of Saudi Arabia and leader of the Salafi scholarship in justifying attacks against civilians by citing his fatwa justifying attacks against Jews in retaliation for what was happening in Israel. So actually, the other side of that narrative is you will actually get some endorsement of terrorism. And so I do believe it's contradictory to take that approach. So I think it's not only problematic strategically, but tactically speaking, I think it's the impact and effectiveness isn't necessarily as much as the claims that people make. That's a great segue to my next set of questions, which is about your role as a practitioner. Can you tell us a bit more about the de-radicalization programs that you've been involved with and what have been the main lessons that you've learned over the past decade from those efforts? I think the, the biggest lesson I've learned, and this might sound a little bit contradictory to some of the things that I've said, is that whilst it's easy to talk about it in general terms and describe the phenomena in general terms, so describing ideologically what the issues are, the, 
the politics, the identity dilemmas and so on. In practice, when it comes to the individual, the pathways are all very, very unique and singular. So actually, when you speak to, now I've spoken to individuals who have had family members be killed um, by drone strikes, as an example, who were not terrorists. And this has been probably the singular most strongest motivating factor for their own radicalization. I've spoken to individuals who've gone off to fight or gone off to join conflicts in Somalia and Syria. And for them, the narrative has been very, very, very distinctly religious and specifically a brand of uh, Al-Qaeda ideology, which looks at the Muslim world as being governed by agents and governing by kufr, i.e. other than Islamic law, um, and sees there a duty to fight to remove these authorities to establish caliphate. So there is very specific narratives. Others have had very strong political influences which shape their world view. So if you come to them with a religious narrative that doesn't fit their radical worldview, you just see matters touched. So actually you need to be able to recognize where there is truth and justice to some of their claims, and where some of their claims are just fantastical and ludicrous. So being able to separate legitimate grievances from you know, conspiratorial political narrative becomes very important, and to recognize the nuances in our society and politics becomes important, to then go back and say, and our religion is equally nuanced in the way we address issues. So there's been multiple different pathways for some religious and ideological, some political narratives, some personal grievances, and also many of whom have had, you know, a spectrum of different mental, Ill, mental health-related or strong mental illnesses. Some on, you know, the, uh, the softer side of the autism spectrum, and others majorly on that spectrum. Moving on to people who are bordering schizophrenia and types of schizophrenia. Then actually, all those factors need to be looked at, and so the approach has to be multi-pronged in that sense. You have to be able to deal with the fiscal narrative, you have to be able to deal with personal circumstances, you have to be able to deal with an individual and mental health issues, you have to be able to deal with the grievances they face and give them outlets for that, whether they're personal or political, and you have to be able to have the expertise to be able to tackle and engage with them on the religious and ideological uh, aspects. And I think that has probably been the biggest lesson that I've learned, that actually there are singular ways each individual becomes radicalized, and therefore de-radicalization and allowing them to move away from that narrative which justifies un, you know, terrorist violence or justifies um, extremist violence, you know, it really does depend upon the individual you're engaging with. As you know, one of the major issues in the United States with CVE efforts has it been about how do you identify people who are at risk of being radicalized or how do you decide where to focus your efforts? And a lot of the concerns in some corners about CVE have been about targeting or stigmatizing of Muslim communities because CVE efforts have been focused in certain communities. How do you approach the issue of identification and engagement in the UK context? In other words, well, how do you decide who to reach out to, who to engage, or do you wait for them to come to you so that you're not contributing to that sense of alienation and stigmatization in trying to be helpful? Well, there's, there's a few things. There's, first of all, in the UK, we have had a lot of research that's gone into this, that when looking at the individuals that are convicted of terrorist acts, then we've managed to be able to analyze and develop particular profiles. I use that word loosely, but particular characteristics and factors that are common within their particular makeup. 
So these include people who are engaging with uh, extreme political narratives. They have grievances, maybe they have a victim mindset. They will have a particular perspective or cause which they strongly buy into. They will be experiencing grievances. They may have other family members and individuals around them who are equally engaged, etc. They have very strong motivations, which we can see. Uh, those motivations which are a harmful means to an end. They will dehumanize other people, so conspiratorial narratives are quite common. You know, and also they will provide a justification uh, for violence. So those types of things exist and therefore they will have manifestations. So when those manifestations, uh, you know, people talk about leakage to, you know, people around them, those vulnerabilities will be seen to people around them. And that's the framework that we look at. Now we look at that not specifically related to Islam or Muslims. We look at that, you know, in all contexts, which means we have what in the in the U.S. strangely is called domestic terrorism. As this Islam and Muslims is not domestic to America, so I think there's a a language problem there, which is hugely an issue. Um, you know, this is all domestic terrorism if it's happening to your U.S. citizens. It's not happening to people who are foreign and alien to you. The Muslims who are being radicalized are part of American society, as are the far-right people. So I think this is something that you need to equally look at, that actually deal with people who, whether they're Muslim or not. Thirdly, I think, recognize there's a political narrative to this. So some people talking about how this is aimed at Muslims only, they, they themselves share a contradiction. That how is it that vulnerable, you know, they are implicitly saying all Muslims are vulnerable to terrorism by saying that you're targeting the vulnerable within Muslim communities. That actually what they're doing is you can't have it both ways. You can't say don't target Muslim communities and at the same time say because all Muslim communities are prone to radicalization and terrorism because you're targeting them. This is nonsense. And we need to be very, very clear that actually no, we're not targeting them. We are dealing with vulnerable individuals. We've seen evidence for these vulnerabilities. And also, and this is quite key, we have at the moment approaches of criminalization where we find individuals that are close to undertaking uh, violent acts or are radicalized and therefore seen as being vulnerable to violent acts. And then investigative teams go in and then push them over the edge. And we've seen this with what people may describe, or at least allegations of um, you know, the FBI taking these tactics of essentially just, um, what's the best word, entrapment. I'm not saying this is the case or isn't the case, but these are the allegations that were made. Actually, what we're talking about in de-radicalization is the exact opposite. We're talking about not criminalizing, but supporting these vulnerable individuals, and therefore keeping this away from law enforcement may be a good tactic. Utilizing mainstream services, social services, once you know there's no um, actual plots or investigations taking place, then what you should do is you should support those vulnerable individuals as opposed to stigmatizing them. And the best way of doing this is by working, cooperating with the majority of Muslim communities, which actually already do not espouse a lot of the extremist narrative that we've been talking about. And what's the role of formers in that process? Because a lot have has been made about mobilizing former extremists to engage in countering violent extremism efforts. Have you seen that to be an effective strategy, or are there also risks in adopting such a strategy? There are risks in adopting such a strategy, and the risks include basically what do you, what do you mean by formers? Do you mean people who are now 
you know, no, have, have renounced the violence, but to embrace an extreme political perspective. Are these individuals, are they stable individuals? That's a reasonable question to talk about someone who's been through that process. So I think you have to address those two issues. The role, I would say, is threefold, though. One is to inform, not dictate policy. So therefore, they don't have any particular magical, I'm speaking as a former here, magical solution, silver bullet, and they shouldn't be you know, given a special privilege position. They should naturally inform our understanding of the issues. And fine, in terms of engaging with how to develop policy and practice, they should be a voice around the table and a stakeholder. Secondly, I think in terms of being able to provide strong messaging to communities and to the vulnerable, I think it's a strong approach to have, whether it's former far-right or former Islamists, actually their message is very powerful, and alongside survivors, they can provide a very strong narrative to do is really the opposite side. And the third side is when you have individuals who have demonstrated the ability to engage, to work with vulnerable people, to be able to help people come back, then in that scenario, whether it's in exit groups or whether it's in interventions, then I think this may be a role in certain circumstances with a lot of the protection mechanisms around them alongside mainstream and multi-agency approaches. And my last question for you, Rashad, is about the evolution of the threat. So if you look maybe 10, 15 years from now, how do you think that the threat of violent extremism will have metastasized or grown or um, hopefully um, have been curbed. You know, one of the new phenomenons I think that we talk a lot about is the role of social media, the kind of lure of the caliphate, the radicalization of people domestically, as you mentioned, the whole phenomenon of domestic radicalization and terrorism. If you think forward a bit, where do you see all of this going? I I mean, my view may be slightly different in that I don't believe necessarily the phenomena of extremism and radical radical Islamism has changed. What I do believe is different parts of it will become more or less influential um, or impactful in different circumstances in different places. So if you just look at Al-Qaeda's narrative, Al-Qaeda's narrative when Jubhat al-Nusra is as extreme as ISIS in terms of the actions they do, whether it's the slaughter of Yazidis, which we've seen. And we've seen Ahar Sham also do the same slaughtering of, you know, Yazidi populations and, and villages in the, in the last few weeks. And this is the so-called moderate Islamist spectrum um, in terms of Ahrar. But actually, they're not that different in practice to ISIS, but where they draw red lines is pedantically different. So Al-Qaeda also have been killing civilians, have also been fighting against the secular opposition to Assad. And their narrative in the past actually was as extreme publicly as ISIS's. The difference is that they've started to rethink their narrative in order to try and win over Muslim majority societies because they recognize their actions were turning Muslims against them. On the other side of that, ISIS actually is a part of Al-Qaeda, which has come out. So ISIS was formerly part of the Jamaat al-Tawheed. It was part of the group that was part of Al-Qaeda, led by Zarqawi and so on. It then became the Islamic State of Iraq, and then it became the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, Dawla Islamic Iraq and so actually, 
it is a successful part of Al-Qaeda which separated off from them and was influenced and impacted by its local environment. And that local environment was disaffected Sunnis, you know, the entire Ba'athist regime that was disenfranchised post-Iraq war. And so actually what you had was it coming together, Ba'athist, ISIS, and this is the kind of creation that we've seen. On the instrumentalizing of um, social media, I think the interesting side here is that the analogy that lots of people have drawn, and I do, I do kind of share parts of it, is that this is no different to the kind of 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s, the creation of the printing press, the Renaissance, and you know, Enlightenment Europe. Though actually, what was happening was you had a an exposure of religious scripture to a whole new generation of people that were religiously illiterate. You had a leadership of authority lost within the circles of the church, and you had all these schismatic groups arise, and they were ranging from puritanical to the lollardy to the, you know, you know, all sorts of feminist movements in Germany in the 1600s that arose all citing scripture. And you're seeing something similar to that in the fact that social media has meant now that anybody who wants to, uh, and actually just the internet as a whole, anybody that wants to become uh, connected and interested with extremism can go on Facebook, go on, uh, you know, the different fora, chat fora, and find different extremists who are active, propagating, proselytizing their point of view. Google Syria and Jihad and see all the different things that comes up. Actually, now that may have changed with Google's policies, but essentially, that you know process of opening up debates and discussions that were happening within enclosed spaces ten years ago are now happening everywhere and open for everybody to see and take part in. And I think that is different. Great. Is there anything else you think it's important for our listeners to understand about the phenomenon of violent extremism or about the responses to it? Well, I, I think there's a few things. One is that everybody needs to take this as a social responsibility, that living within uh, societies where we're given um, you know, rights also comes responsibility. And I don't just mean that rhetorically or you know, we have a responsibility to preserve our democracy, our values, and I think in the U.S. context, given the, the fringe elements that are involved in the politics right now, um, and in the U.K. context, and across Europe, in fact, you know, much worse, the rise of the far right, all these things demonstrate the importance of us, you know, fighting for our values. And that includes against the likes of, you know, authoritarian wannabes in the U.S., the far right in Austria, you know, the schismatic uh, extremist groups in Germany with Padiga and so on, and also in challenging ISIS's narrative. That actually the narrative of extremist Islamism, the narrative of the far right, the narrative of authoritarians, all challenge what it means for, you know, the, the freedoms, the values, the civilizational growth that we've had as, as, a, as, a, as a people. And so we all have a responsibility to not just challenge that in the ballot box, but to challenge that in our campaigning, to challenge that in the way we live as a society, and when we see it, to not be, af- be afraid to call it out. I think that's a very thoughtful note to end on. So Rashad, I want to thank you for joining the program, and as always, for your 
really engaging and thoughtful remarks. I am so appreciative to have had you on, on extremism today. Thank you. Thank you.